0: views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Thank you, Mrs. Robinson. I'm sure we've all shared your affairs during the past few days. I see a gentleman here with his little boy. What do you think of the spaceship, son?
1: It's the biggest spaceship I ever saw.
0: <laughs> and you, sir. Mind telling us your name? My name is Captain. Would you care to say a few words, Mr. Carpenter? I suppose you're just as scared as the rest of us. In a different way, perhaps. I am fearful when I see people substituting fear for reason. In fact, uh, I would like... Thank you, Mr. Carpenter. Th- thank you very much. I see another gentleman over here in the crowd. Would extra! You care to say extra! There? Space Daddy Luke, please! Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 19th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right.
1: Fade into color,
0: color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be up. And welcome to the show today, where the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation. And the conversation today will be about copyright legislation, a basic primer, gasoline price fixing. Is it a problem or is it a non-issue as far as you're concerned? And eco-fascism versus the car culture. But first, trading reason for fear, what the City Planning Committee did not hear this past, uh, I believe it was Monday night don't know if you saw yesterday's uh, newspaper, I guess that would be Tuesday night, wouldn't it Um, front page of the London Free Press very interesting contrast here it's the story that's missing Um, front page says barbecue hooky And the paper made a big deal about a quorum not being achieved at a meeting over the weekend and listed everybody who didn't attend and made a big deal of it. Even in The Londoner, we see something here, The Missing Eleven, Coincidence or Conspiracy by Phil McLeod. And it's just a meaningless debate there. It took up the whole front page, another page, but where was the real story? The real story was on page four. Drive-through debate detoured for now. And it's not what this story says, but what it does not say. In fact, it's the very story that's on the front page, but they didn't tell you. Another quorum was not reached in this particular meeting, only it was done in a totally different way. In this way, apparently, three of the council members, after taking a vote and losing, got up and walked out on the meeting. And you know what? This article doesn't even mention it in yesterday's paper. haven't seen today's paper yet. Maybe it's in there. But I was, uh, you know, I found myself phoning in earlier this week on another radio station in town here, CJBK's Open Line Show this past Tuesday, to thank them for presenting, uh, first of all, the facts behind the whole issue and for presenting two debaters on the issue who uh, showed up on their show that day to explain to the public what they wanted to explain to City Hall and that night. Now, uh... This was about the drive through band, City of London. Really got a lot of people going this week. One of the people that was being interviewed, his name was Doug Bethune. He's an automotive technician, and the other person interviewed was Bruce Cox, executive director of Greenpeace. Now, both of them were to appear at a planning committee scheduled for Tuesday evening at 7 p.m., and each got a chance to present their positions on the air, and... What I heard from each of them was basically this, and I think it's very worth knowing, especially in the vacuum of knowledge that seems to be surrounding this whole debate about drive-thrus and cars. When, when pressed for his position on a drive through ban, Mr. Bethune, who was sort of introduced as being on the side of industry, insisted he doesn't take sides, but was just trying to explain the science of automobiles and of issues like idling you know, versus parking and restarting which is a completely unpolitical viewpoint. And here's what he explained. I I, I didn't get the whole thing. I wish I had had it on tape, but I took notes while he spoke. And basically he said this, and I think everyone should be aware of this. First, he's unaware of any proven studies suggesting that drive-throughs are an environmental issue or a danger. But the first thing that Mr. Bethune addressed was an issue that I've stressed over and over again on this very show, and that is this. The confusion of CO2, carbon dioxide, with what we normally call pollution. These are very two, two very different things, he explained. And how this relates to your car is this. The pollutants that your car is capable of emitting are the following, okay? This is the bad stuff. Carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, which is unburned fuel, it's an inefficient engine, you know, Oxygen, strangely enough, just O2, the stuff we breathe. And nitrous oxide, those are the things that they consider harmful things coming out of your tailpipe. Now, these are the emissions that he said, quote, affect human health. Virtually none of these, he said, are coming out of our modern cars with computer-regulated emission systems. In fact, and this is interesting, when they measure the cleanliness of your car's exhaust... One of the desirable standards is a high CO2 level. They, they, they actually measure that as that's the standard of cleanliness, and they like to get it up around 13 to 15 percent, which means that's when your car is at the lowest uh, level of, of actually exhausting real pollutants. Now, when your car is idling, the amount of these exhaust pollutants, carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, oxygen, and nitrous oxide, is negligible almost not measurable in any health-threatening way. So, so you know, when you heard Corey Morningstar, uh, Council of Canadians' local spokesperson, who was screaming at City Hall that, our people are suffocating! Uh, I mean, the hyperbole of this argument becomes rather self-evident when you actually see the facts. I was wondering, too, uh, what did she mean, our people? What's that all about? What, what type of people that you'd call our people would be living right beside drive-thrus, and how come only your people are suffocating. I'm not sure what, where that was coming from, or maybe she just means the people that are part of the religion, the, the green religion. So so what actually happens when you park your car and you restart it instead of using, say, the drive-through? Now, Mr. Bethune, you know, he, he admitted, he said, yeah, this, it might reduce CO2 when you turn off your car. That's true, because when your car's is off, it's, it's off. It's not doing anything, right? But it dramatically increases the real pollutants that your car emits, and here's why it, why it happens that way. Every time you turn your car off, you're shutting off the computer in your car that manages and regulates the fuel, the exhaust, and the other emissions for best fuel economy. So when you turn off your car, you're also turning off that computer, and it takes about three to four minutes, he explained, and longer in colder weather, for that computer to recalibrate. You know, creating what he calls a closed loop. That's when your car is operating very cleanly. But until that time it operates in an open loop and that's when it's really spewing out all those real pollutants. Just like our cars did with just carburetors and we didn't have this kind of regulation. I noticed that in my last car. You know, you'd start it up and it kinda you'd feel it running a little fast and after about a couple of minutes it would just kind of all shut down and get calm. Well that's the computer kicking in and uh, putting your car in its most efficient mode. So uh, that's how I experienced it anyway. Now, most significantly, Mr. Bethune, Doug Bethune, who's, who's the technician talking here, is someone who was very instrumental in setting emission exhaust laws and standards. And you know, I would say one guy like him has probably done more for the environment than, than 100 Al Gores or David Suzuki's. Now, the great irony of this, get this, the great irony of this, is that if you're a you know, part of the eco-fascist movement, The people who currently park their cars, they should be now going the other way. They should be forced to use the drive-thru, since scientifically, if you're going to argue scientifically, this is demonstrably better for the environment. Isn't that... wouldn't that be a spin, eh? It also means that all anti-idling bylaws create more pollution, and so we're having pollution actually forced upon us by law. Now, of course, I don't think the eco-fascists would do this because to do that would mean convenience capitalism and choice because that's really what their target is and that's a big issue in in the back of this we've talked about a lot a lot about that on the show but from my point of view i'm just being sarcastic a science alone is n- no reason to restrict how people want to use their property and or their cars we should never even think that way science is non-judgmental and science must be disciplined by reason purpose cost and benefit. That's the human way of life. That's how we do things. And uh, when I hear about this, you know, i just so, so, so tempted to say, you know, oh, how green is our grave. It's, it's so s- symbolic. Then on the other side of the issue on the same show, we heard from Bruce Cox, Executive Director of Greenpeace Canada, who was also scheduled to speak at the meeting on Tuesday. When confronted by the scientific idling facts, as presented by Mr. Bethune, Mr. Cox replied, quote, Well, it's not about idling, end quote, and I'm just sitting there in shock. Oh, well, that's what we've been talking about for the last five months, and now it's not about idling, because it just took one person to put that one to rest. So what does he do? Of course, step two, he attacked the integrity of Mr. Bethune, referred to him as a representative of industry, which, of course, disqualifies him from the debate, a debate that they obviously do not want to have. Now, Mr. Cox explicitly stated that, quote, he didn't want to muddle the issue with pages and pages of facts, end quote. Oh my goodness, don't want any facts in this debate. It's not about facts, he explained, quote, it's about what kind of culture do we need to create or, or to fight climate change, end quote. And, you know, in this regard, I got to... Hand it to him, he's actually hit the nail on the head with that. He knows very well that the, quote, kind of culture, end quote, needed to fight climate change would be a fascist global totalitarian state, which is the very explicit goal of the Green Movement. Anti-capitalist, anti-industrialist, anti-business, anti-freedom, anti-reason, anti-choice. This is just the telltale science. Those are the consistent elements that you will find everywhere in the Green Movement. Don't look for for the exception to the rule. Look for the consistencies now faced with the fact that banning water bottles and banning drive-throughs are not really factually good for the environment uh, mr cox referred to the use of science and facts as a quote strategy used by companies rather than getting caught in the non-debate of details end quote cox said we should be looking at the bigger picture and consider that there are nine thousand five hundred premature deaths from air pollution and if you're not part of the solution you are part of the problem. End quote. Not one scientific argument was offered in that interview, despite all efforts to get one point out of him. You just attack the messenger, push the green religion, change the culture, and be intolerant. That's just that's the way it is, folks. I can't see it any other way. Now, Judy Bryant, in commenting on the idling bylaw, she was on the radio, too, and she, she emphasized her motivation and philosophy by saying, and I quote, and, and understand this, quote, reducing use of cars is fundamental, okay, end quote. That's her driving force, everything she does. When people look at her and wonder, why are you doing these weird things? Because that's what she's doing. She doesn't care if the car pollutes or not. She just wants to reduce the use of it. It's a convenience, Inconvenience is not what she wants to see, whether she admits it or not. You know, she she, she, should, she suggested that banning drive-throughs would create more employment by requiring uh, more employees inside the fast food outlet. So she she thought she was putting to rest the argument. Well, you know, you're going to put people out of work. Well, you know, talk about not understanding economics. This is strictly a two-dimensional thinking. Bryant assumes that all the patrons who go to drive-thrus will simply continue to visit them in equivalent numbers if the drive through part was banned or closed. Uh, you know, she doesn't understand, or, or scarily maybe she does, that convenience has a value, one that citizens of a free society are entitled to because they earned it. You know, I for one would likely never revisit the drive-thrus I, that I visit now unless they were drive-thrus. That's, that's why I go there. Convenience is what I'm going there to buy. And if the food is great, all the better. Now, if you want to see a real waste of fuel, consider uh, what I used to do back in the 70s with my family and stuff when we drive all the way to Toronto just to visit the Dufferin Mall to buy some, some roti, a West Indian uh, dish that we liked a lot. And uh, we actually took the drive from London to Toronto just for the pleasure of it. Can you imagine that? Oh, what sinners we were. I just can't believe we did such things. How dare we live a lifestyle beyond that of bare necessity and physical lab- labor, you know? But out of this whole mini-debate that occurred, two comments were made at the end, both by Mr. Bethune, which I thought were truly the most significant comments, and of course, the least discussed. First, he, when he was asked what does he think motivates the people behind the drive through ban, he said he doesn't know. He doesn't understand their intentions. All he could see was, well, emotion takes over. That was his comment. All emotion takes over. And you know, one of the reasons I think that honest and virtuous and relatively non-judgmental people like Mr. Bethune and other objective scientists and technicians and those in the science community, one of the reasons I think they don't understand the motivations of the Green Movement in general is that they cannot believe or comprehend the actual, you know, I can't think of another word, but evil is what strikes, you know, behind the intentions of such movements. They're not nice people nice ideas. And it's beyond their moral frame of reference to make to, to take most of what they hear from the Green Movement and other people like that very seriously. They just don't take it seriously. They think it's a joke. And it's not. People in Germany were like that when they heard Hitler's wild, uh, crazy, you know, theories about Jews and stuff. Most people didn't go along with that stuff until, well, it was too late to, to, to argue with it. But the second thing Mr. Bethune mentioned, right at the end of his interview, was how close to a completely new car revolution we are today. Uh, merely a few few years was his suggestion, and I think it's a lot closer than that. Uh, when we'll be driving cars that he said, quote, require no gas and no batteries. That's right. You heard right. And how do these cars operate? Get this, on hydrogen or on compressed air? Now... This isn't quite as simple as it seems, and in a very few weeks I intend to have a guest on our show, an inventor and scientist and researcher who works right here at the campus at the University of Western Ontario, and he'll have some stuff to tell us about this. Uh, that will just blow the green right out of the water. So you have to stay tuned for that one. And of course, I don't know if you saw the paper June 17th, I think it was just yesterday. Did you see it there on, I don't know what page, Hollywood is hot over clarity, and there's Canadian actor Laura Harris near a picture of Honda's new zero-emission hydrogen fuel cell car that was already released in California, the FCX Clarity. And uh, the the, uh, Honda Motor Company put that out just yesterday, and it's a very nice-looking car. It looks like anything else that's driving out there on the street. So... It's happening, folks. This whole debate is going to be made irrelevant in such a hurry that the uh, people on the eco, uh, you know, they want to tax us and everything. They better get in a big hurry because uh, they better grab the money they can while they can because we won't be using as much of this product. Now, we'll take a quick break for a little smile, and we'll come back after this and more on the car culture versus the environmental movement. Uh, the funniest thing that happened in 1999, besides the world not coming to an end, of course, was uh, a series of tornadoes that touched down in Kansas. One of them actually hit a mobile home manufacturer. Is that not the funniest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> God took out the middle man. You're not even getting out of the factory this time. That's how
1: I feel about you bastards. God's got a plan. Yeah.
0: You know the biggest losers in the world are biggest losers by far, the people on cell phones, on the bus. (laughs) Who are they trying to kid? You know? We know it's not working out for you. You know? They're always, hey, what are you talking
1: about? The stock is going down. Then sell, sell. Yeah, can I get a transfer over here, please? Yeah.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us. And of course, I should always remind you about our email, justrightchrw at gmail.com, and our website, uh, justrightmedia.org, where you can get a whole archive of all our past shows, including the current, and uh, one's live even now. It's, you could go to that website and be listening to the show there right now ecofascism i always have been using that term and you know it's almost like it's it's a great term to use against uh, through uh, you know the whole this whole battle against the car culture i've been saving this one for a little while and it seems to be more timely today given some of the other things that have happened with drive-thrus and stuff and I've uh, last week, of course, I picked a little bit on Paul Burton and some of his editorials on, on this issue, and, and I've done it again in the past with uh, Gord Harrison, who, who I get to pick on again today for a bit. Sorry, Gord, but, but you do give me a lot of material to work with. <laughs> How high must gasoline go before we change our habits, asks Gord Harrison in the May 29th Londoner. And I quote, quote, Why can we not change our driving habits at a faster rate? save money and improve local air quality, just one environmental benefit, at the same time. Off the top of my head, says Gord, I can think of three reasons. First, we love our vehicles and the comfort, convenience, speed, and style they provide. There's that word, convenience. Second, I don't think many people know how to say these three simple words to a friend or coworker. Do you want to ride together? And third, many of us spend disposable income on a long list of assorted extras or goodies, read uh, pleasures, non-necessities, you know, comfort, convenience, and we'll drop, perhaps begrudgingly, some of those items long before we ever get into the habit of opening the car door to another passenger. Am I right? Gord asks, end quote. Okay, Gord, I'll answer the question. I think, uh, no, Gord, you're wrong. You're you're so wrong uh, that you're not even on the wrong right scale. You're not even on the right story, let alone the right page. Uh, first of all, the price of gasoline has nothing, we're going to be talking about that a little later, has nothing to do with the environment, per se, and a good deal to do with environmentalists who have contributed to limiting supplies and increasing world demand for oil. And you add to that a recent inflationary trend as governments were you know, bailing out failing banks, and that makes oil a commodity. In a place where investors will put their money to protect it from the decline in value of paper money. I talked about this entire process and how it works and how, on our money show broadcast way back when. So these are just some of the factors that are driving up the price of oil and gas, to say nothing of the continuing demand, against a not very fast increasing supply. And as far as high prices not leading to changes in driving habits, I think Gord's wrong again. Not only that, but he just got his wish. Thousands of auto sector jobs are being wiped out in Ontario precisely because consumers have turned away from the large gas guzzlers. And that's the marketplace doing the job for you, Gord. You don't need to pass all these silly laws. You know, laws are not necessary to do what people already have to do for their economic well-being. Now, none of this, of course, will cut down the amount of motor traffic. The traffic will just become more fuel-efficient. uh, But, of course, a lot of people who have lost their jobs, so their habits will likely change, and I don't know whether the Green Movement wants to consider that a success for them, but I don't think it has much to do with them other than their contribution to the supply shortage. Now, I could go on being sarcastic forever about this subject, but I've got an open message, I think, to direct to Gord Harrison and Paul Burton and David Suzuki and Al Gore and, and all the folks just ramming this green stuff down our throat. I wish they could understand that I, and I talk to a lot of you and a lot of other people, we don't like or appreciate constantly being preached to by an endless irrational rhetoric that sounds like it's coming from some religious fanatic who just won't go away. Now, while you're certainly entitled to your viewpoints, that's not at issue here. Would that I could just ignore those viewpoints. Like I am able, you know, in general, to ignore most religious zealots who've got nothing real to offer or anything to say about the environment or with life in general. But because these ideas and this whole campaign goes beyond mere expressions of someone's viewpoint and into a political insistence upon me sharing and agreeing with those viewpoints, I am actually not free to ignore you. Or if I do... I will do so at my own peril. You know, I'm going to be in trouble if I just sit there. I mean, not not reading the London Free Press isn't going to save anyone from any of the bad consequence of the philosophy that that paper represents. And it's, it's, it's the many, many people who don't take these ideas seriously, who think it's just a joke, who will be among, you know, the first hurt by those ideas. So for me, it's a bit of a moral obligation and imperative, if I may use Al Gore's axiom, to point a finger at irrationality whenever it threatens my and, and I think everyone else's well-being, safety, and comfort. And, and <laughs> if you want to be funny about it, in addition to contributing to greenhouse pollution, the amount of newspaper print devoted to, I just call it journalistic drivel, it's got to crowd out all the real news from our local papers to the point where news is almost not a word you can use to describe some of the media in town. And which is another reason why I found it difficult. You know, when I talked last week, I wasn't able to find very many articles that weren't about green. And of course, it's going to get even worse with Dion today going to bring in his uh, carbon tax that he, he thinks is going to get him into power at the federal level. So it's obvious. We live in dangerous times. And if there's a big storm coming, as Paul Burton's uh, editorial I read last week suggested, I think it'll be one we rain down upon ourselves. I, I, I hope you fi- you can find a place for cover because I don't think that these religious fascists are going to leave us alone. They just uh, they don't operate on that motto. Their, their, their motto is don't live and don't let live, whereas mine is live and let live. And with that in mind, we're going to take a break for some ads and messages and also... Uh, What you'll hear next is Dr. Walter Williams speaking to an American audience about some 10 years ago. been talking a lot about the attack on capitalism through the environmental movement. Now, of course, 10 years ago, that wasn't the issue, but the attack was still going on then by the same people uh, doing the same thing, and I think you'll find what he has to say quite interesting, and when we come back in several minutes, we will be talking about an entirely different subject, well, closely related, car culture, gasoline price fixing, and we'll be back right after this.
1: Now, for the past half-century, free enterprise and what it implies has been under unrelenting attack. Americans from all walks of life, and I stress all walks of life, whether they realize it or not, have demonstrated a deep and abiding contempt for private property rights and individual freedom. I believe that free enterprise in our country and our prosperity is threatened today not because of the failure of capitalism but somewhat ironically because of its success. That is, capitalism has been so successful in eliminating the traditional problems of mankind such as disease, pestilence, gross hunger and poverty, that all other human problems appear to us to be at once inexcusable and unbearable. The desire by many Americans to eliminate these so-called inexcusable and unbearable problems has led us away from the basic ideals and principles upon which our prosperous nation is built. In a free market, You are able to become rich by serving your fellow man rather than than plunder and looting. Now, a lot of people say that the free market is dehumanizing. It, It doesn't work. Well, maybe one of the reasons why the free market does not work all the time is because it's not allowed to work. Many Americans, particularly the Congress of the United States, have adopted the intellectual tradition of Roman Emperor Diocletian, who lived around 301, 300 A.D. And Roman Emperor Diocletian, he said in decreeing price and wage controls throughout the Roman Empire, I mean, this is something that could come out of the Clinton White House, I'm going (laughs) to quote. Diocletian said, quote, Unregulated economic activity is an offense to the gods, close quote. (laughs) <laughs> there are numerous forms of government intervention in our society. I already talked about one. Another form of intervention is the government granting privileges to some Americans and denying them to others. Privilege granting is an activity that, by government that dates back far beyond the Dark Ages, where guild and mercantile associations control trade in their particular areas, With a payment to the king or the reigning lord, they were given monopoly privileges. That is the right to live at the expense of others. In modern times, we have the equivalent. We just don't make payments to the king or reigning lord. We just make political contributions. Every group in the nation, almost every group in the nation has come to feel that the government owes them a special privilege or favor. And I might add that people who call themselves conservatives are by no means exempt from the practice. That is, manufacturers feel that government should protect protective tar- tariffs, that is keep foreign goods out so they can charge you and I higher prices. Farmers feel that government owes them crop subsidies. Organized labor feels that government should keep their jobs protected from competition with those who are not union members. Intellectuals and college professors think that, feels that government ought to give them funds for research. College professors love to get three $400,000 grants to do studies on poverty and have meetings in Miami at a nice hotel during the winter to talk about the poor. The unemployed and the unemployable feels that government owes them a living. Now, by the way, I can give you a hint. If you ever see conservatives arguing, you can bring instant peace among them. Just start talking about food stamps. (laughs) Conservatives rail against food stamps. They rail against aid to families of dependent children. They rail against legal aid. But they come out in support for aid to dependent farmers, aid to dependent banks, and aid to dependent motorcycle companies. As such, they don't have a moral leg to stand on. They just prove that it's a matter of whose ox is being gored.
0: In politics throughout history, it's just a matter of uh, whose ox is being gored. Whose side are you on? And we'll use government to help our side. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us. Fix fuel foul Quebec motorists demand, reads the heading in the London Free Press, June 14, 2008, by Peter Rab- Rabuchuk. And it quotes, and I quote the article here, and of course you've heard about this, um, or maybe you haven't, I don't know. Angry Quebecers demanded that gas companies lower the price of fuel at the pumps after news that some of them had acknowledged fixing prices. Companies are making too much profit, Manon Fairfield complained as her husband filled up at a shell station in downtown Montreal. It's always the average person who pays more while the big companies get more cash. They should just be satisfied with a small profit. Three companies, including Ultramar Limited, pleaded guilty and were fined a total of $2 million. A former Ultramar employee was fined $50,000. In Quebec City, uh, lawyer David Bourguin said he has been hired by a man to seek permission for a class action lawsuit against gasoline companies over price fixing. Ultramar Vice President Ross Bayas said his company's price fixing was an isolated incident. Pierre Julien, who needs his car because he's in the restaurant business, says Canada should follow Europe, where gas prices are set by government. Yeah, they are, twice as much as what we, what we pay, and that's what we're going to be getting soon, too. So he, Pierre's going to get his wish. Another motorist said he wasn't surprised by the price fixing. We knew it all along, but it's not going to stop. The 50-year-old, uh, 54-year-old salesperson said they got caught. They're just going to do it a lot better the next time. Betty shrugged and said high gasoline prices won't stop him from driving his car. Quote, we're in a car culture and I don't care if it's $5 a litre, I'll still drive, he said. End quote. Now, in an an accompanying article by David Friend, uh, Canada Press, quote, many parties to blame for rising pump costs. The writer reports that, quote, this week motorists saw the Federal Competition Bureau clamp down on a network of gasoline cartels in Quebec laying criminal charges against 13 people and 11 companies for allegedly fixing prices. The first such charges since 1955. Wow, we had to go half a century, more than half a century before we had a charge under this. And I think that's because, to be honest with you, you have to be a complete idiot to get caught and admit your guilt to fixing prices, don't you? I mean, (laughs) why would you tell them? Of course, they left a trail. Silly. You know, this is considered serious allegations by some people. And it's amazing that that they actually pleaded guilty to such charges. Even though participation, this is important to note, in their so-called price-fixing scheme was completely consensual and voluntary. And there was a lot of competition in the area. Not everyone was participating. And even though the amount in question was, you know, pennies per litre, uh, no one would have suffered any repercussions, legal or criminal, had they not chosen to stick to any price-fixing deal that they might have had with some other retailer. So it's not like organized mafia, you know, we're going to fix the prices, and if you lower your price, we're going to come and you know, send a guy out to break your legs or something like that. It wasn't like that at all. And... Uh, from what I heard from all the loose discussion on the issue, it was just, you know, one guy running a gas station, he'd phone up the guy down the street, what are you guys charging this morning? And they'd sort of start their day like that. And it was almost an informal kind of thing. But the people who were caught in so-called price fixing, which is not really price fixing, uh, it's not what they're talking about, it's really price changing in unison, that's what they mean. Uh, Because I think the term price fixing has another connotation, but... Uh, you know, they could have just as easily found out what their competitors were charging by sending them, someone down to the station and see what price they posted that morning. But instead, they decided to phone ahead and save themselves a trip. And that's why we haven't had any charges since 1955, because uh, nobody thought of using the phone to do that, because know you, know, you should know uh, people have superstitions about economics, and that's one of them. And really, you know, an agreement of this sort, this kind of price-fixing, would only really work amongst retailers who have roughly equivalent operating costs. If somebody had a lot higher operating cost or a lot lower operating cost, they wouldn't be participating in that, they couldn't. They'd either compete, lower the price, or or raise a price in order to stay in business. Now, what I wanna know is, how is it possible to do business and not price fix? That's what I wanna know, how do you not fix a price? Isn't any price you ask for something technically price fixing? I mean, if you're charging what the market will bear, quote-unquote, how can your prices possibly be that much different from everyone else's price? It would almost be impossible. And, by the way, our gas taxes, not the gas price, but the taxes are an example of price-fixing, and our politicians won't reduce them for anything. And, you know, although consumers, this this is funny, consumers, they have the right to compare gas prices and collude with each other. And they can go to information sites and websites and phone each other and call in radio stations about where stations are offering cheaper gas prices. Uh, You know, but if a gas retailer does the same thing, he's a criminal. Hypocrisy demonstrated. That's what it is. So, you know, consumers complain about, we, we talked about this on the show before, but I don't think exactly in this light, Consumers generally complain about gas pricing for two different reasons. This is funny. One, prices being the same everywhere they look. Or two, prices being different. (laughs) Which leads to accusations of rip-offs and everything, isn't it? They're not going to win. This is an outcrop of antitrust thinking. It's a lose-lose-lose equation for anybody in business, and it works something like this. Here's how it goes. And literally, this is how it works. And this is why a lot of people who are serving jail sentences and paying fines are being treated so unjustly. If you charge more than most of your competitors, you could be found guilty of price gouging. If you charge less than most of your competitors, you can be found guilty of unfair competition. And if you charge the same as most of your competitors, then you're guilty of collusion and price fixing. It's just at the whim of the person who wants to charge you. Whatever uh, emotional state they're in and whatever superstition they've got in their mind that day, that's what they'll come after you with. Now, of course, what consumers are really complaining about is high prices, not the state of competition. If price-fixing, quote-unquote, actually lowered the price of gas, I don't think you'd see those consumers complain, at least about the price-fixing. They might start complaining when they realize that government-fixing prices artificially low would lead to rationing, uh, which, of course, is what happens in our health care system and everything else that the government tries to give away at at a reduced cost. And we talked about this in Iran, too. They ration gas in Iran, where they have the oil fields, because of the fact that they believe all this stuff, too. In fact, you know, private price price fixing, if you can say that fast, to lower prices has usually been the traditional concern of policymakers, because they used to argue that, well, you know, the large company, they can drive the smaller companies out of business by lowering their price, and that was true to a degree. But today, the political argument's exactly the opposite of artificially low prices. And I quote, The government is taking action because we will not tolerate high gas prices, end quote, says Colin Carey, federal junior industry Ministry minister, in the same June 14th London Free Press article I referred to earlier. Uh, while offici- official opposition MPs are sitting there going, well, more must be done to ensure that there's no collusion among major oil and gas companies, end quote. So, you have a choice here. Government price fixing versus private price fixing. Who should set the price on something? Who do you think? The person who owns it? Or the state? I mean, all truly immoral price fixing, artificially regulated prices removed from market pressures, is always a government phenomenon. And, you know, so who should, who should be setting the price? Do you own something? Do you have a right to ask any price for it? I think you do. And, of course, what else do they do? They, they attack the profit motive. You know, Oh, they've got too much. It's an outrageous amount that the oil companies are making. Well, I think it's a, an outrageous and irrelevant argument. In normal market conditions, and by normal I mean free and capitalistic, because that's the only form of market that operates on market principles, which is private property and voluntary exchange. But in a normal market condition, the presence of high profits draws competitors into the arena, and that's the incentive for existing companies to produce more, too, usually requiring incredible profits in order to find and drill for oil sources. I mean, they need that money. That's That profit is part of the engine that drives the economy later on when they're not making so much profit. They're normal markups, only in the 5% range at, at any case. But it seems like a big amount when you're talking in billions and billions of dollars. It's not in all in one guy's pocket, okay? Now, As production and competition increases, of course, prices fall, and that's how it works. And that's the only way prices are determined, again, unless they are fixed or regulated by government. And by the way, those so-called fixed prices, are they still, you know, the ones in Quebec that we just talked about, are they still at the same fixed level they were when these charges were brought forth? I bet you they aren't, because they're not fixed. (laughs) They go up and down all the time. If they were fixed, they'd stay there, wouldn't they? Uh, Government regulating the price you're allowed to ask for property that you own I think is an explicitly fascist political policy and not to put too fine a point on it I think it's immoral it's the latest popular thing don't you know this fascism and it's been a running theme on this show hasn't it government control of private ownership has nothing to do with economics other than being an attempt to avoid economics and avoid economic forces. So I'm going to argue that if you own something, whether it's your home, your car, the clothes on your back, your food, or gasoline, you have an absolute right to ask any price for it. This right is so absolute in fact, you know, and I think everyone will accept this, that you can actually choose not to sell what you own at any price. And nobody's forced to buy it from you, again, unless the government forces you to, or a criminal. And that's outside the context of this discussion. So... Let's face it, if I've got the right not to sell something, don't I have the right as well to ask any price that I want for it? Because I'm not going to get the price unless somebody wants to give it to me. So, to me, the very term price-fixing is a misnomer. All prices on all goods are fixed unless the seller is willing to negotiate. I think the only place I could think of that wouldn't be a fixed price, although it might be a floor level, would be at an auction or something like that. Or where two people meet and they start bartering. That's when the prices aren't, quote, fixed. Uh, so... What the, what the objection of consumers is, is not price fixing, but price saming and price differentiating. They, they get upset when they see prices change, and that's the big thing. So they use any excuse, basically, to avoid the reality of you know supply and demand. Any excuse to avoid the fact that if you want lower prices, you've got to increase production. And that's called supply, because demand is not about to drop on a, lo- on a, on a global scale. I think that's pretty much a given fact. You're hearing that from everyone, so... Uh, You know, of course, the other issue, the one thing we brought up in the last quarter of the hour there was uh, new technologies. And that's always an issue that's going to be coming up. It's going to change the whole pattern of this, especially when we get cars out there that just do not need this fuel anymore. So until then, let's get on with it. Let's produce more gas and get those prices down. We'll take a quick break now for a little smile and we'll come back after this talking about copyright legislation. What a quagmire we're into there. We'll be back right after this. We do destroy it. What do we face in retaliation? It's George, would you turn that radio off? I'm trying to concentrate. Something. Why doesn't the government do
1: something? That's what I'd like to know. What can they do? They're only people, just like us. People, my foot. They're Democrats. It's enough to give you the shakes.
0: university student. I got a letter from one of my professors accusing me of plagiarism. I couldn't help thinking, wow, what a great letter. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon, which is not very long. And I'm introducing an extraordinarily complex and... Uh, Difficult subject, I've got to admit. You know, I've done a lot of subjects on this show and I've talked about everything from the universe to religion and I find a lot of those issues easier to talk about than this one that I'm delving into because I really haven't ironed out what I would consider would be the ideal policy on this issue, though I do have a lot of the critical pieces in place that I think I, I need to know to start on one. And we're talking about copyright. Interestingly, here at CHRW, the broadcast policy, they have Article 12 under intellectual property, and it reads as following, quote, plagiarism is unacceptable. Broadcast journalists will strive to honor the intellectual property of others, including video and audio materials, end quote. Now, of course, uh, I imagine... You know, in a, in a sense, in a very strange technical sense, I guess all public libraries and all radio stations to some degree and other mass media violate strict copyright in almost constantly. It, it's almost impossible to avoid in some sense. And i ought to make a confession to you. I violate copyright probably at least once a day, personally, if not more often. At least copyright law, as it might be interpreted by some and most certainly as it would be interpreted by the government's latest foray into the issue of copyright. This past week saw the federal government table some long-awaited copyright legislation, Bill C-61, an act to amend the Copyright Act. was described by National Post columnist Terence Corcoran on June 13th in his article called A Bill to Save Kill Bill (laughs) Rights, And he described it as, quote, a sound piece of work on the whole, taking necessary steps to protect rights that were being eroded by technology. While there's no doubt legislation can go too far in protecting rights, there may even be such instances in Bill C-61. I sure agree with him on that point. The vociferous operation, or opposition sorry, to expanded rights comes mostly from a group that bears a surprisingly consistent grudge against corporations and the business world in general. If you go online and pay $4.95 for a copy of Tarantino's 2003 movie, Kill Bill, for example, the telecom Trotskyites, who believe the Internet is a giant open cosmos, a massive free public space into which everyone can scoop up whatever floats by with little or no regard to ownership, think you should be able to copy it freely and resend it to all your friends and relatives, if not your entire email cache, at no charge. Bill C-61 appears to kill that possibility with a $500 fine for such breaches of copyright, end quote. Now, in a separate news item on the same day's National Post, quote, cop- uh, entitled Copyright Amendment uh, Amendments Target Traffickers by David George Kosh, in which we're assured that the bill will only target heavy traffickers of pirated content and not the average citizen who makes a few illegal copies for private use. Quote, Canadians caught downloading illegal material, such as an MP3 song or video will be subjected to statutory damages of $500 per incident. Now, that's not per recording, that's per incident. Uh, however, if the defendant testifies that they were unaware that they infringed on copyright, the fine is reduced to $200. So, gee, yeah, I wonder what everyone's going to testify the first time they get charged. And the article goes on to explain how it will not be the government that does the policing on this. Okay, This is not really a big change. And uh, I myself can't think of a situation where this was ever the case. It's always up to the content creators themselves to do the basic policing. Now among the proposed copyright changes that were listed were some things that we can do and cannot do with copyright material. Here's some of the ones that caught my immediate attention. i got to be honest, I haven't read myself the technical detail of Bill C-61, so I'm just relying on, so far, what the media is bringing to us. Now, among the proposed changes, the ones that we can and can't do, apparently, we're permitted to record time-shifted TV shows on a personal video recorder, but get this, the shows cannot be stored indefinitely, nor can you keep your show to create a library. You're allowed to copy a book. You can copy a newspaper or photograph if you've legally acquired it, but you cannot give away copies. You cannot, get this, you cannot make more than one recording of a TV program. This isn't even Internet stuff, folks. This is back to the old VCR. You cannot post copyrighted material, such as a picture or video, onto a website, such as Facebook or on YouTube. And you cannot copy music and give it to a friend. Now, those are some of the things that... the new legislation would introduce. A lot of critics are saying, well, this legislation isn't going to go anywhere. It won't, it won't be tabled in time before the government probably changes. Some people are saying it's just a show by the Harper government to say that they're concerned. There certainly is a lot of industry uh, complaining about it, both on both sides, strangely enough. There's actually artists and other people who, who do not want to see stricter copyright, but want to see other, other ways of dealing with it. But this is one issue it has so many pieces. Don't expect me to arrive at any conclusions today. I've just got some basic definitions and, and focus here where we can just start to figure out which direction to go here to arrive at what I would call a just solution to this. Now, this is one of those issues, I think, where you don't follow the money because money really has nothing to do with this. You know, we usually say, you want to find the, the bottom of this issue, we just follow the money. Uh, yes, it does and it doesn't, but if you do that this time, you're going to get lost because... I hear this issue so often debated in a vacuum, you know, that people seem to think that if you just pay for copyrighted material, that that resolves the issue. If you give the artists the money they want, the whole copyright issue is over. But that's not the case. Copyright is still retained by a producer and an artist and a writer, even after you've bought for and paid the product, right? Paid for the product. Nothing changes with respect to copyright. The issue of payment of artists is an entirely separate one from copyright per se, since copyright is not rescinded or lifted just because you've paid for a product. It's still copyright. Now, whether the product is paid for or not, legal copyright is always retained by the artist and writer. And this fact, I think, is so regularly overlooked in the whole copyright debate that, for me, the issue often isn't about copyright. I hear people talking more about money for artists, and I I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think you might get lost on the copyright issue if you think that that's what the legislation is going to be about. Now, on a personal level, it's really funny because I'm just looking at the time here, see how much of this I can get into. I've been using this, uh, a DOS-based program as a database since back in the 1980s. It was created by Ashton Tate in 1987. And every time I boot this program up, it still runs beautifully, still compatible with everything today. It's a version 1.0, never had a bug in it, just amazing. But I have to go through this page like we do with a lot of programs. It says you agree to the terms of using the package. And this is what my, uh, my program said from way back in 1987. It said, quote, You may use the software and printed materials in the package only under the terms of the printed software license agreement you received in the package. In summary, Ashton Tate grants you a paid-up, non-transferable personal license to use the program, which is called RapidFile, on one computer workstation. You are not the owner of the package, nor do you have the right to copy, except permitted backups. Or to alter the software of printed materials, you are legally accountable for violations of the license agreement and copyright, trade secret, and trademark laws. End quote. Now, this program gives me no choice but to agree to the terms, and but and assumes that. I've consented by the fact I've pressed that enter key, which I have no choice but to do to start the program or, or even to exit it. I have to still hit that because there's no other options offered, okay, as they do with some of the newer programs. You have to click yes, and if you don't click yes, well, the program's not going to operate. Now, the agreement here, quote, agreement, end quote, assumes that I have no ownership rights at all with regard to the program that I spent 300 bucks on. It was just on a single floppy at the time, and it was legally uh, registered and all that sort of stuff, you know. And first question I used to always ask myself every time I saw this thing come up, I'm going, well, okay, if I don't own th- this disc and I don't own this program, do you own the money I gave you? Are you just holding it for me while I use this, and then when I return it to you, you're going to give me some of that money back? I, I don't think it works that way. and And I'm beginning to think that people who buy copyrighted material, they don't get a copyright to that material, but I do think... That they have some rights to that material, especially within the purview of what I would call their own private domain—the four walls of their home, so to speak. I can't get into this in big detail today, but um, it's just the way I'm thinking. It's just not—I don't see it as a one as a one-way street. And uh, you know, I imagine what if other products we quote owned came with similar conditions. Imagine if there was sort of like a copyright or patent every time you turned on your tap, you owed the plumber who installed it. You know, something for turning on the tap kind of thing. And you don't want to turn copyright, which is a legitimate protection for artists and and people, uh, into something that it should not be, censorship, basically. Now, uh, the interesting thing is I I went to a dictionary to find out what the definition of copyright was, uh, actually. And uh, I'm just looking here where that (laughs) actually, where I put that. Yes, Canadian Law Dictionary use a very strange word to uh, define copyright. And they say an incorporeal right subsisting in a work of art, literature, music, films, pictures, etc., in favor of the author of such work and is protected by the Copyright Act of Canada. By the way, by incorporeal, they mean a right which has no material existence, which is very interesting. U.S. definition has the same term. Um... The first Canadian Copyright Act was passed in 1868 and was succeeded over the years by new enactments. Under the Geneva Convention of 1952, to which, Canada became, to which Canada became a party in 1962, 10 years later, international copyright is obtained without any formalities at all. All you have to do is place on your work the symbol, you know, that symbol C with a circle around it, identifying the name of the copyright holder in the year of 1st publication, and apparently that gives you copyright on your work. The right of an author to his work can be assigned, although the mere transfer of property in a work of art does not thereby necessarily amount to an assignment of the incorporeal right of copyright. The Copyright Act is not, is, is not concerned with ideas or the originality of ideas, for there is no copyright in the same. It is the language or expression of the idea, which is the subject matter of copyright. Aside from the Copyright Act, and this is all still out of the legal dictionary, at common law, the author of a literary composition has an undoubted right to the piece of paper on which his composition is written and to the copies which he chooses to make of it for himself and others. If he lends a copy to another, his right is not gone. If he sends it to another on under, under an implied understanding uh, that he has that he does not want to part with or publish it, he has the right to enforce that undertaking. End quote. Now, I found that very interesting, and I found also interesting that uh, I was looking up other terms, for example, fair use. Uh, one of the cases that just came before the courts in the United States was, I don't know if you heard about Yoko Ono uh, and John Lennon's music. She was, uh, just went dropped a recent copyright case in the U.S., be, in New York, and she lost a legal bid on Monday a couple of weeks ago because uh, someone was using a 15-second excerpt of John Lennon's song Imagine in a film challenging the theory of evolution, and the court basically threw it out. She's going to try and appeal it, but they think she's going to lose because of the fact that they're going to say that that, that the producers of the film have fair use to that clip. And so I went to the legal dictionary, and this is interesting. I hate to have to end this here because the show is running out. But there is no similar term in... The Canadian Law Dictionary, although there is a term called fair use in the law of copyright in the States, and it is this, it is, quote, the privilege to use copyrighted material without the consent of the holder of copyright. A determination of fair use requires an examination of attendant facts and circumstances, and they refer to the case MiraPol versus Nizer, and that's where I pretty well almost have to leave the show today. But basically, I'm starting, I think, to see the end of the, t- you know, light at the end of the tunnel on this. I'm starting to get some of the pieces put together, and we're certainly going to be doing another show, probably a whole show on the issue of copyright, and uh, where we should probably go with laws like this. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to leave you yet for another week, and we hope that you'll return with us next week when uh, hopefully we'll have a guest on the show, and that will be a uh, second-time returnee John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute, who will be talking to us about uh, terrorism and other issues. So until next week, we hope you'll join us. Until then, be right, do right, act right, state right, and think right. Take care. We'll see you then.
1: Into color, color into black and white.
0: I had an apartment in Los Angeles and I had a neighbor and whenever he would knock on my wall I knew he wanted me to turn my music down and that made me angry because I like loud music so when he knocked on the wall I'd mess with his head I'd say, go around (laughs) I cannot open the wall (laughs) I don't know if you have a doorknob on the other side But over here, there's nothing.